Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Um, again, uh, feel free to, to check this out. At, at the same time, if you uh, you can feel free to speak to Owen more a little bit uh, after service as well. Um, uh, with that, uh, we're going to continue our series, and as you guys know, our, our year theme has been Kingdom Vision, but what we've been looking at in particular these last, uh, last week and also this week is uh, the challenge of actually trying to learn how to see. Um, now, all of us, we can see. I'm hoping uh, for a lot of us, we might have to wear glasses. Some of us might wear contacts. Some of us might uh, find that our eyesight is going uh, worse as we get a little bit older. Um, but what we're trying to learn and try to understand is what does it mean to see the way that God sees? Uh, how do we see the world the way Jesus sees? This is important because the more complex the world becomes or the more challenge that we find ourselves facing, uh, it becomes harder and harder to see where there's hope, where there's promise, where there's light. Uh, at the same time, it's easier for us to be more divisive. One of the things that we've seen happen in the world more lately is people are becoming more tribal. Uh, they're also becoming more uh, diverse in their opinions, but antagonistic in that way. Uh, whether it is uh, the tensions right now between China and Hong Kong or the tensions between uh, U.S. Uh, and the U.S., uh, or uh, even in this country, uh, between the viewpoints on immigration or on Brexit or even political parties, uh, or even how we spend uh, the money, uh, whether it's HS2 or uh, anything else. Um, there are such strong opinions that for sometimes for us as Christians, it becomes, well, like, um, and it's very easy, and I know millennials would slip into this, like, well, what's the point? I might as well just spend my money and travel and enjoy the world and go to places like Thailand and Indonesia where I don't have to see actual people and just live off the trade there. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, is always engaging with the world in a very real and practical way. And we also remember back in those times, things were not great either. There was slavery, there was persecution, there were crucifixions that happened uh, to criminals. Um, these are pretty brutal uh, kind of events. So for us to understand, well, like Jesus, in the time that you were there, the Romans, uh, in a time of great tension between Jewish people and Roman people and other civilizations, uh, other countries, um, how did you view the world? How did you see things so differently than the way we do? The, what we're going to look at today is actually um, spiritual blindness. Um, and in particular, uh, what are the types of spiritual blindness that we might have? Um, in the Bible, and particularly we'll be looking at uh, the book of John, uh, the book of John uses a lot of uh, imagery. In particular, they use a lot of imagery between light and dark, and they also use a lot of imagery between uh, seeing uh, the truth uh, versus the darkness, and also uh, being seeing and also being blind. And we're going to be looking at passage in particular in John uh, chapter 9. Um, but I want to highlight three types of spiritual blindness that we may or may not have, and also the difference in the way God sees the world. The first, of course, of type of spiritual blindness that we have is what I like to call armchair philosophers. Uh, the people who kind of sit uh, someplace in a place of comfort and uh, commentate on the world around them, uh, say and throw out opinions, uh, and have all sorts of opinions on a million different things, but may never really get their hands uh, in the mix or get their hands dirty. Uh, I think we all kind of do this. I think it's very easy to leave a comment on a website. Uh, it's very easy to sit there and make a complaint about someone else, uh, but never being part of the solution, just saying, my commentary on this situation is all that needs to be said. And that's the kind of way we look at things. Um, let me read this passage. And this is picking up in John chapter 9. Um, and it says, as he went along, and talking about Jesus, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is a typical armchair philosopher kind of moment. Uh, you're walking down the street, and as you see a blind person or someone, you sit there and you you know, thoughtfully repose and consider, ah, yes, blindness, this cause of pain and suffering in the world. How might this have happened? What is the situation here? In fact, there is such a distance of removal that they're asking Jesus, this great teacher, this great wise person, and, and he looks at this person who's blind, and instead of saying, oh, look at this, you know, how could we help him? He asks Jesus a theological question. Ah, Jesus, you're a theological teacher. Tell us and explain. What is the cause of this blindness? Is it a curse? Is it from God? Is it from this man's own sinfulness? This is something that we might find ourselves doing quite often, actually. Contemplating the world's ills, contemplating the problems that we see in this world around us, but not engaging. Armchair philosophers comment and question the situation, but avoid directly getting involved. 
Armchair philosophers might ruminate and philosophize about uh, things, but they don't work towards a solution. Armchair philosophers might intellectualize a solution, but don't actually get their hands dirty. Now, what's happening here with the disciples is they're doing that exact same thing. They're looking at this blind person not even as a human or as a situation that they might get involved in. And, and, and understand why. This guy was born blind. I mean, he's been there for ages. He's become a fixture of maybe that road. They all know who he is. So when they're coming by, they're not thinking, Jesus, you should heal this guy. They're just more saying, well, this is a great teaching opportunity. How might I learn so that my mind might understand deeper and greater? Now, Jesus' response is this. And uh, Jesus responds to the armchair philosophers with a bit of philosophy. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus responds and gives them a theological kind of answer. Not one they're expecting. They want to know, like, is it option A or option B? And Jesus says, "Ah, it's neither, actually. Well, actually, this man didn't sin. It's not because of that. But through this situation, God's going to be glorified. Then he throws out this, this thing that sounds a bit weird. You know, night is coming. You know, winter is coming was what it sounds like, right? Night is coming when no one can work. But while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. There's a lot of discussion about what does this mean? What's he talking about when night is coming? Is he talking about the end of the world? Is this what he means? Uh, most of them, they kind of understand, even here, where they're talking about the work of him. It's not saying salvation or believing. They're talking about the works of him uh, who sent me. What Jesus is saying, while he is here and present in this world, he is bringing light. But at some point, he will die. And he knows this is going to happen. He knows he's going to give his life. And that will be that time of night. When you're here on earth, and this is the lesson for us, while we are here on earth, we have an opportunity to be light. But at some point, we are going to die. And we will no longer have that opportunity to do that. You will not be able to do that good work once you are dead. Now, this is important because if you are an armchair philosopher, you want to sit there and you might want to do your PhD or consider or think and reflect on all these things and write, but you don't want to get involved with what's really happening. Now, I'm not saying your research or PhD may not contribute to that, but there's something here that Jesus is saying and something that he then does that helps us to understand that our role as Christians is to be present and to be engaged in the world around us. Because after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This means send. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is literally, it cannot get any more clear, Jesus getting his hands dirty. He gets right involved in the work of healing this man. Now, that's Let's be clear here. Jesus does not need to stick his hand in the mud. He doesn't need to spit on the ground and rub it on this guy's eye. Jesus could just say, Shazam, you know, your eyes are open, um, you know, or ta-da, or, you know, do some magic trick. And, like, whatever. Jesus could do that, but he doesn't. He literally spits on the ground. He puts his own life, right, into the ground, makes mud. It's not going to be that quick. I'm imagining you have to spit quite a lot. Um, And uh, you're mixing some mud, and then you're putting it on the eyes of this person. What Jesus is trying to say, look, you disciples, you want to stand here. You want to comment. You want to say, this is what it should be like. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I get what you're trying to say. But while you are here on this earth, you are to bring light. Because you will not be able to do that forever. And so what Jesus does immediately is he gets right into the mix of things. And he speaks to this guy. Now, for us as, as Christians... You know, that, that's the strict challenge for us, right? Like, what are, what are we doing? We can't just sit on the sidelines of life talking about things. And, and this is it's very easy because actually it's a lot easier to intellectualize and converse about something or get into a theological debate instead of actually taking time to get to know people or to love them or to hear them or to wrestle with their issues. One of the big challenges that is in this modern day and age is how do Christians deal with uh, the topic of sexuality or homosexuality. And it's very, this is one of the easiest topics to sit there in an armchair and philosophize about. Because it's very easy to read the Bible and say, well, this is what it says, black and white. There, shazam, we've decided that's the way it should be. And then we'll set some sort of uh, law out. But what Jesus would do, and what I've discovered at the same time, is that these issues, though they might be black and white in the Bible, how they are explained or how you relate to people about it or how you walk with someone through the struggle is very different. 
if you want to be an armchair philosopher and stand at a distance and just shout at people or just say, this is what I think, you will not actually have the opportunity to, to actually live life with people. In my experience, when I have come alongside someone who is struggling or not struggling with their sexual identity or homosexuality, there is this easy part where you can stand at a distance and judge, but when you come alongside them and you hear their struggle and you try to understand where they're coming from and you love them and you care for them and you walk alongside them, that is a very different kind of journey. What God is asking us to do and what Jesus is demonstrating for us to do is that we need to be involved in people's lives. You need to be relating with them. Jesus lived three years with these disciples. Like, that is as close as you're going to get to people. Like, really going through their lives, being with them, sharing with them, spending time with them. And that is what life is about. Now, it's hard because a lot of us, maybe we're socially awkward or worried. We don't know how to engage with people. And we feel like, oh, it, it doesn't make sense. Or we want the other flip side. We want people just to listen to what we say. What Jesus is saying, actually, for most of us, we need to understand how can we demonstrate and live and show God's light and love to the world around us. Now, it doesn't mean it can't happen through writing. It can't mean it can't happen through research. Those are all very good ways. But the other very important way is that it needs to be done with your life engaged with other people. Maybe one-on-one, -on -one, maybe in groups. But we need to understand how do we actually move forward in this way. The way I would describe this, instead of spiritual blindness, being an armchair philosopher, we need to be incarnational light. In other words, we need to be present. We need to be engaged. We need to really be there with people. There's something, uh, there's something very precious about being a Christian. Um, when you're alongside someone and they're, they're sharing with you your life that they couldn't have shared with anyone else, and you can pray with them. You can bring them to God, and you can demonstrate love or patience or understanding in that way. It's the best part of being a Christian, actually, when you have this chance to do that. But if we choose, and we deliberately choose to stay at a distance, just so we, our hands don't get dirty, then we are going to be left out. So when I first came to this country, I was... Um, as, as, I, I would say I was quite, quite uh, arrogant, I think. I thought I was something more important than I was. Um, and probably that was just covering up my insecurity, knowing that I really wasn't that much of anyone because I was quite short. I was in Cardiff, and uh, this is when I, before I'd, uh, I'd, I'd met my, uh, my wife, uh, but she wasn't my wife yet. Um, and she, she also did not think much of me because she thought, you know, this guy's so arrogant. I remember distinctly there was this moment in Cardiff Church where there were a bunch of dirty dishes in the sink. Now, I, this seems to be a recurring theme with me and dirty dishes. But there are these dirty dishes in the sink, and uh, I knew that someone needed to wash them, so I left the room so that uh, someone else would wash it because I didn't want to get my hands dirty. Like, I just I didn't want to do it. I don't like washing dishes, right? Like, um, also, I wasn't sure if I could do it. So I left the room hoping that when I came back, someone would have washed it. And I came back, and no one had washed it yet. So I left the room again. Uh, and when I came back, someone was washing it. And I was like, oh, oh, thanks for washing the dishes. Oh, good. I didn't know they were there. Like, I'd lie as well. Like, it's just like, oh, thank you. Um, and, and that was very much what I was like before. There is this real sense of, you know what? As long as someone's doing it, that's what's important. If I can be there or I can tell people to do those things, that's what's good. Um, and this was like for me growing up in my church back in the States. In America, in Los Angeles, you can be very superficial. You can talk very much like a Christian. You can do things that look like Christians, what they would do. Even things like leading worship or speaking. Those are great things you can do in the front. But I didn't actually want to be alongside people, like really through their hardships or their struggles. And I don't just mean at a conference for like um, a weekend where you just have to, you know, pray with them and then they're someone else's problem. Like, the greatest challenge of life is being alongside people. Like, not for short term, but maybe longer term. To hear their good and their bad. To care and love for them. It's one of the beautiful things about churches. It's, it's actually harder to find community nowadays. But churches are one of these amazing places where you are a mix of people. And yes, we might be more uh, ethnically similar. But, but culturally and perspective-wise, it can be pretty broad. Um, but learning how to then choose... And decisively walk alongside someone and say, well, you know what, actually, while I am here on this earth, before night has come, I need to have the light shine. And I want the works of God to be displayed in my life and in other people's lives. 
it, it changes your perspective of everyone in this room. Like, you're like, oh, well, while I'm here at university, maybe for a few years, um, I want God to use me. I want to get to know these people. I want to, I want to be there for when they are going through hard times, to be to cry for them, cry with them, to share with them, um, to have them call me up when something hard is going on so that I don't have to solve their problems, but I can be engaged in their life. You don't want to live life on the sidelines just commenting on everything because at the end, you'll find that you've never lived life at all. We are really challenged to have and live this incarnational life. The second kind of spiritual blindness, the first one is this thing that we are armchair philosophers and we can sit here in a comfortable space and comment on all these things. The second kind of spiritual blindness is what I would call commenting truthers. Um, now, the word truthers come into play because it's uh, in the States with the whole rise of fake news. There are people who are like, well, um, I am a truther because I'm proclaiming the truth about this thing that everyone thinks is a myth. So there are... Uh, there are people who are anti-vaccine truthers, but you're like, that's not true. You're just propelling a lie. Or Donald Trump truthers. Or Obama born in Kenya, you know, like not a U.S. is in Muslim truthers, right? And they'll say the truth. And then there'll be a flip side of like, no, 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 no. You're not a truther. I'm a vaccine truther. And then you're like, okay, I think you guys are totally distorting this word truth. But this idea of a commenting truther is someone who really likes to not only comment on things, but basically says, well, this is what I believe. And since I believe it, this is the truth. And you can't uh, prove me otherwise. And the more you try to prove me otherwise, the more I'm going to say, no, uh, I'm pretty sure what I believe is true. Again, it's a way of spiritual blindness where you're distancing yourself from people. But worse than that, it's holding on to something or some position that you want to believe in. Because that's what you want to believe. Now, the passage goes on. So after this man uh, goes and washes his eyes in the pool of Siloam, and he he's comes out, and he's like, I can see now, I can see now. Um, it's pretty uh, amazing, right? Um, in typical uh, Chinese fashion, uh, I, I like to think Chinese people are like this, uh, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging start coming out and say, oh, look at who's this person. Oh, uh, And they're like, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. And others said, no, he only looks like him. Now, it's funny um, because the man's not deaf, right? Like he could hear, he can hear, right? He's, he was blind, right? So not only, can, not, not only not can he hear what they're saying, he's like can see them like, like oh, is that, is that the guy that used to be blind? Um, and this is a typical kind of commenting sort of situation, right? Where you're kind of commenting on the situation. And the other part is people are holding their positions already. They're already determining what they believe, right? So the person's like, oh, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And somebody, oh, yes, I think it was. Another person, no, 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 that can't be. He only looks like him. It's like his twin brother. Uh, secret. You know, like all these Jewish people look the same. You know, like, um, and, then, and then he hears all this and he comments and he says, he himself insisted, no, no. I am that guy. I am that guy. And their response is not like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. You were born blind and now you can see. No, their response is, huh, well then, how were your eyes opened? Oh, you say you're a U.S. citizen. Well, let's see your birth certificate. You know, like, it's like, we don't care. Just prove it more. There is this real sense of, if you are a comedy truther, you hold your position of truth so tightly that you cannot actually hear or see what God is really saying. Now, this is becoming a bigger problem in this, in this world nowadays. The more that people hold on to conspiracy theories, or the more you choose which news media to believe or, or read or understand. And people use this to their advantage by causing more confusion. What we're seeing in Hong Kong and China right now, even with the Hong Kong thing, it's, it's getting harder to tell who's, who's the protester, who's not the protester, who's making up whether the protesters are really there or not. Like, it's getting harder to tell. And they're using this deliberately to try to confuse, to push people to not seek the truth, but to hold on to their own positions already. The passage goes on, and he replies, he, and he answers them, right? So they ask him, well, how can you see now? And he answered them, well, he replied, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He didn't get the salam and washed, so I went and I washed, and then I could see. Okay, at this point, like, how much does it take to, to prove, like, oh, so you actually have a story? Well, no, I, they're still like, no, I don't, I don't think, well, where is this man? 
Like, where I don't see him. Where's Jesus? Like, where's it? Like, it's not that people don't know who Jesus is, right? Like, he says, the man they call Jesus. That's already, one, a reference to a specific person uh, to say, this guy is. And then their question is like, oh, yeah, well, where is he? I need to have that second source validated. I'd like to speak to that man myself so that I can confirm whether or not this is actually true. Uh, it's almost like the, he's at a university and the lecturer is saying, well, I don't think you can count Wikipedia as a source, so we're not going to discount that. We're going to put this all on the side. The, this whole thing about accommodating truther is, once again, though these people can see, they're completely missing the point. This guy was born blind and used to beg at the temple all the time. But now he can see. Like people who are born blind, you don't, those, those people don't get healed. There's not medical surgery or LASIK that's somehow going to fix it. This person was born blind. Especially back then, this was, this, it was like a supreme miracle. And none of them are rejoicing or declaring the fact that, oh my gosh, whoever did this, like, I would want to follow that guy because the guy who can heal someone born blind, wow, what can they do for me? Like, why wouldn't I believe this guy? And when you are spiritually blind, you lose sight of actually the truth. And you find yourself believing what you want to believe to force the world to fix it around it. Uh, most recently, one of the, one of the biggest uh, and most ridiculous, I would say, uh, conspiracy theories out there is that the earth is flat, that the earth is flat. Um, and they're flat earth truthers because they're telling the truth that everyone else is wrong because the earth is flat. And it's ridiculous because there's, I, like, I get it, okay, maybe before, I don't know, however long ago, the earth was flat. And when you got to the end, you just flipped over onto the other side. I, I don't know how it works, right? But um, these people still believe it. And most recently, what they tried to do was they tried to do this test. They said, well, we're going to prove that the earth is flat. And they did this test, and the test proved that the earth was round. Um, <laughs> and then they said, oh, no, it's because we did the test wrong. Now, this is a typical case of you are holding on so hard to a truth that you believe that you're unable to actually see the truth. The, the biggest problem with comedy truthers is actually not that they're uh, blinded by what's the lie. It's that they're completely proud. You are too proud to admit that you're wrong or you're too stubborn or you're too arrogant to see actually what the truth is. Now, when we put it that way, you begin to understand actually all of us, we are probably too proud most of the time. We don't like to hear the other point of view. And even when you are hearing this sermon now, you're thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, so-and-so should really hear this message. If this person was here to hear that message, then that would make it better because that person really has this problem. If that is you, if you're hearing this message today for someone else, you're going to go home and say, oh, you got to listen to this message on the podcast, hoping that somehow that's going to improve your relationship with the person because you won't fight anymore. You're doing it wrong. Your point here is to stop and listen and say, oh, my gosh, wait, God, Am I too proud that I am unable to hear another perspective? Because if I am doing that, it means I am unable to love people who are different than me. And if I'm unable to love people that are different than me, then, then I will turn into an armchair philosopher who will can only stand at distance because I do not want to get my hands dirty to mix with these people. You begin to see spiritual blindness is horrible because it begins to cut you off from things that are important. From, first of all, community, but second of all, from truth, from understanding. It is so important for us to begin to hold on and discover and seek out the truth of God. Instead of being a commenting truth or what we need to do is become truth receivers. Like we need to be eager and yearning to find the truth and to ask God to show us the truth about things. To help us to understand. It, it then becomes when we have conversations with people and people who are older and more mature is trying to have this discussion. Well, well what does God say about this? What is important? Right now, uh, in, in the world, there's, there's so much trying to pick uh, subjects or topics, uh, hot topics to press. And those are trying to find answers to the solutions. It's important to have those discussions. But you have to draw back and say, well, actually, in these situations, God, what are the values that you want us to have as we explore these things. 
Because when we go back there, you begin to understand, well, the, the greatest values that we have is love God and love our neighbor. How is that expressed? How do we understand that even in these situations? How do we deal with these difficult kind of moments or these difficult kind of complex issues with this lens, with this framework there? Because when you're trying to say, well, I want to love God and I want to love my neighbor, you have to keep going back to God and say, God, how can I love you in this situation? Uh, I posted a video yesterday on my Facebook that my friend sent uh, from the BBC. Uh, about what's going on in Hong Kong right now. But it was these uh, Christians in this church in particular who uh, would put together teams of people to go down to, um, on one hand, mediate, but to come in between the protesters and the police to try to still sacrifice their lives on the line to say, you know, well, if the protesters are getting violence, we're trying to get them to calm down. If the police are becoming violent, we're trying to get them to calm down because we believe as Christians that's where we're supposed to be. I was like, wow, see, that's... That's, as a Christian, really putting your life on the line. At the same time saying, look, we hear your side, we hear both sides, and we stand. We might stand on one side, but for us, our position here as Christians is that we need to demonstrate the life and love of Christ to these people because violence is not going to help in this case. And we see them, they, they, well, they're wearing like as much body armor as they can get. They're wearing yellow vests. Uh, they have, you know, we're saying, you know, like I'm a church worker. And, and they know at this point, the police don't care. I mean, you know, you wear whatever yellow vest you want. But if you still look like you're protesting or like might be, you know, you could be a medical person. It doesn't matter. So they know they're putting their life on the line, but they're still saying, well, this is what it means to one, be incarnational light. But the second also means that how do we still be humble so that we are expressing God's truth? even in these complex situations. For us, if we are not seeking God's truth and we're not trusting in God's values, then we are going to be doing things our own way. And we're going to be holding on to our positions blindly, not able to listen or to care or to engage with the people around us. The third and final way of uh, spiritual blindness, if the first was uh, armchair philosophers and the second was commenting truthers, the last one is gatekeepers. Now, now, gatekeepers is this idea of, well, you think that in your position that you are, whether it's authority or leadership, that they are the one that decides what is right and what's wrong, and people have to come through you to understand. And this is what I like to call gatekeepers, because after this, um, now it's very interesting, right? Uh, so the, the neighbors and all those people commenting about uh, whether this man is uh, healed or whether he's a sinner... Uh, at this point, they ask him, where is this man? And the guy's like, I don't know where Jesus is. You can know these people are not interested in the truth because then what they do is they take him to the uh, Pharisees. They just want to cause, you know, stir things up a little bit more, right? Uh, so they bring him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, and the man replied, and I washed, and now I see some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Now, these are a mix here now of armchair philosophers and commenting truthers. Uh, but it's a little bit worse because they are what I call gatekeepers. Now, Pharisees get a bad rap. If you're a Christian, Pharisees get a bad rap because we're always reading about them. And they always seem like, oh, these are the guys who hated Jesus and they want him killed. And they're always like in trouble. Let me give you some context of Pharisees. Pharisees did not set out in their life to be like, how can we be the most annoying kind of people in the world? Uh, my life goal is to be so annoying that if I find someone that's really good, we're going to kill them. I, that's my life goal. Pharisees were not like that. Actually, Pharisees start out very well-intentioned. Their perspective was this. Why are we under Roman occupation? Well, we're under Roman occupation because we are God's people. Like, we're God's people. Why are we under Roman occupation? Why do they, why do they boss us around? Why do we have a second-class, third-class citizens here? Um, they're like, well, we're under Roman occupation because we didn't follow God's law. I mean, that's the reason we went to exile. That's the reason we got back here. But we've been under this oppression the whole time. What's most important is that we follow God's law. We're not holy. That's why. So the Pharisees were like, yeah, that's it. And we're studying the word. That's what it seems like. So... As rulers and, you know, people in power, what we've got to do is make sure people follow the law. We've got to make sure people are holy. If people are not holy, then we're in trouble. So we've got to make sure we draw these lines. So they start saying, okay, well, we want to make sure people are holy. So we should say, okay, well, Ten Commandments, you know, don't break the Sabbath. And we're like, ah, oh, you know what, though? We say don't break the Sabbath, but people are still doing things. What's it mean to break the Sabbath? Okay, well, I think it means don't do any work. Okay, that's what it is. So 
they can't do anything. So they start adding more laws. So they start pointing, okay, look, this is for your best interest. Um, your best interest, we know you don't want to break the Sabbath, so we're just adding this other law so that you know what the Sabbath really is. Okay, we're just putting this extra fence up so that you know that you're safe. It's almost like, uh, what, what kind of parenting is it called? Like helicopter parenting, where you're hovering over your child so much that you're so scared they're going to make a mistake that you just don't want them to get in any trouble. And these Pharisees are doing this. They're building up more and more walls because they want people to be holy. Their intention is good. But what they end up doing is creating this kind of gate that becomes so difficult for people to understand or get through or to see what it really means to be holy that they lose the heart of what actually what it means to follow God. They're only focused on the behavior. And they're convinced if we can change their behavior, then that will be enough for God to set us free from this Roman rule. And then the, the Messiah will come again. They have this picture, and it's a distorted picture, and it makes sense in their heads because they're like, well, holiness is the biggest thing, and we need to be holy. And God is using that also trying to say, look, okay, I know that's what you think, but you will never be holy enough. And that's why Jesus has to come. They can't see that because they're locked into this position, this kind of understanding. Now, our, our challenge here, though, for those of us who have this spiritual blindness, is we think somehow that it is our job and our responsibility to set up the walls on what it looks like for everyone to be holy. The more you start doing that, the more you create a maze that's difficult to get out of. In fact, it's hard to kind of see how to even treat people. You're always trying to barrel them into a certain kind of perspective or a certain way. Now, as I will say, as a pastor of a church, it's very difficult trying to find this balance. Like, you want people to love God and serve God. You want uh, people on the worship team to be uh, holy or mature Christians. At the same time, I, I can't police you guys. I can't be there all the time saying, whoa, I see what you're doing. I pop up uh, under your bed in the middle of the night. What are you doing here? Why, who's this strange? Gen- oh, it's your family. Okay, that's cool. Um, you know, like, and then sneak back away, right? I'm not, I'm not that creepy of a kind of person. Um, no, um, there's this difficult line, and you guys understand this as parents too, right? Like you're trying to get your kids to do the right thing, and you want to make more rules for them. But it seems like the more rules you make, the more they find ways to get around it. So you got to make more rules, and they keep getting around them some more. And you're like, why might kids have to be so smart? Why, why can't they be dumb and just follow the rules? And you're like, um, it gets so difficult. The flip side is actually what we really want and what we really yearn for is, gosh, if this person could desire it from their own heart, boy, wouldn't that be a lot easier? Like if they, they ask God, because the crazy thing is that's what God wanted to do. Like the reason Jesus dies on the cross is so that we become holy vessels, so that his spirit can dwell in us, so that his spirit can convict us of what is right and wrong. And our job then is to kind of listen to the Holy Spirit. What it means then for if we are so locked in to this gatekeeper mentality, we are preventing God's grace the freedom to work in people because we are exercising what we feel is justified judgment when really judgment is left up to God. See, the truth of the matter is you shouldn't be scared of your parents or your friends and their judgment, but you should be pretty scared of the judgment of God. What helps me is realizing, oh, hey, Bert, you're really not that good. You're like pretty bad. Like, actually, in comparison to God Almighty, like, you're pretty messed up. Like, a lot of the ways I work or things that I do, like, it, on the surface, it might look fine, and there's things God is using through that. But if I look deeper, I know, wow, God, actually, boy, I really need your grace. And I need your grace to transform my life more so that I will know what holiness really looks like. When, when, I, when I start thinking about that way, it means that I'm suddenly I'm a lot more gracious to the people around me. Like you want to be able to listen to have more forgiveness, more understanding to the people around you. Now, it's hard, though. I, I'm not saying this is easy. None of this is easy. Actually, breaking any of these spiritual blindnesses, they're not easy because we are fixed or we feel fixed to think a certain way or act a certain way or to keep ourselves distant from these things. But if we truly desire to have our sight fixed, to really learn how to see, then we need to ask God, God, change me. I am not the gatekeeper of this faith. I am someone who has been brought into the kingdom 
I'm a child of grace, and I live in this way. This passage kind of unfolds, and, and it goes on from here. Um, so they're debating, and the Pharisees are really upset because they're like, oh, he broke the Sabbath, right? So he can't be a good person. Um, then they turned again to the blind man. Well, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. Now, see, the difference here is the man, the blind man, he received, right? He received not just the truth, he received the eyesight, but he also understood that he was, he didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't forgiven in the sense that he was a sinner. But the grace that he loved and received from God meant that he was so quick to then follow him. He knew that he was a child of the grace of God because he did nothing to deserve the healing. There's nothing about him that he should have suddenly been, someone could walk by and say, hey, you can see. It was just the grace of God. And he received that gift so joyfully and that he's just talking about so truly and so purely. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for his man's parents. Is this your son, they asked him? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Again, they're trying to put the gates up, right, to see, and they're trying to ascertain whether this is good or bad. And the parents say, well, we know he is our son, the parents added, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who has opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Gatekeepers, they use fear to keep people inside the gate. They use that to put judgment across. Now, if we are the same kind of people who are using fear to keep people in line, and some of you may know governments that use that kind of policy to try to make that work, or if you are the kind of person who tries to use that, believe in them, that's somehow going to shape them, then you need to stop. You need to reconsider, okay, God, well, am I, am I losing my way? It doesn't mean that you cannot be necessarily strict but there needs to be clear or reasonable aboutness about this. We see because actually how the man replies. So they go a second time. They summon the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. He said, we know this man is a sinner. Now he's trying to force the situation. They're trying to use now strength or authority or power um, to try to push things forward. But the man's response is actually very different because it's very clear it is not using fear, but it is using this kind of really clear understanding and perspective. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then he just puts out the facts, right? He like, spells it out very clearly. Then they ask him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he's like, look, I told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Yeah, it's funny because you see at this point, this man is now clearly not just saying that he knows who healed him. He's saying, well, I'm a disciple of this guy. I follow this guy. Actually, I don't really know who, I just know he's the man called Jesus. Remember, this guy has never seen Jesus before in his life because he was blind when he walked away and then he came back. So he doesn't actually know who he is, but he does know, look, this is who I follow. Now, there's some breakdown here that you can have in this conversation. Now, for a lot of us, this is how our conversations sometimes fall down. There's one side really trying to push into one direction and another person resisting. And the problem here is one side is not listening to the other. There is a breakdown in communication here where the Pharisees keep saying, no, you need to say this. What is it that's going on? And this person is actually giving clear reasoned responses and also stating not only that, but his position. Now, it breaks down because the Pharisees cannot receive or hear or understand that. And they're using their position as a gatekeeper or the ones who are wiser or better to lord over this situation. Now, again, this is challenging for us because for a lot of us, we are in positions of authority or responsibility. And it's trying to see, well, okay, well, we have to somehow use that wisely but you can even see in this conversation, this could have gone a very different way if there is a willingness to converse, to hear the other side, and to go forward from that. But whether we act out of our own pride, or our own insecurities, or our own fears, or our own experience, that will affect how this unfolds. And this could be because of the way we were raised. 
because of the fear that we were brought up in. Or it could be the kind of work environments that we've grown up in, that we use those same kind of tools. When you are just copying the behavior that you learn from someone else, that means that you still have that spiritual blindness. And Jesus is trying to say, no, you need to ask him to change the nature of your conversations so that understanding can unfold, so that things can move forward. Because this conversation could have gone very differently, right? It could have been like, well, well, we see clearly this is a miracle. No one's been healed, born blind. We know that because actually just after this, um, this man explains very clearly. Then they hurled insults at him. You can tell that it got aggravated, right? Because now they're emotional because they're not just, uh, there's no more reason here. They're emotional. Like, you stupid fool, blah, 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 blah. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses and is this for this fellow. We don't even know where he comes from. You know, like they're so angry. They're all pumped up. And this is the man's response, right? Now, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, and he listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. One, this is a very clearly demonstrated testimony and proclamation of Jesus and the experience there. But because this incident story escalated, where no one's one side's completely unable to listen, where the emotions are completely raised, it just means that you cannot actually move forward in this. You see how their role as gatekeepers, and when that is frustrated or put against, they respond angrily or emotionally because they're not able to stop and actually listen. When that pride gets in the way, you are deaf and you are blind to really what's trying to be said and shown. To this replied, well, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. It's that, it's that thing where like, well, I don't, I have all the power. So out, kick you out. That's all I can do. You know, like I have, you have no right to be here. If we believe, and oftentimes we are given those places of authority and responsibility, the question is how do we use that? Both in terms of guide or to shape. And the big key is actually humility. To understand actually that the positions that we have, yes, they may be earned. But we also know that you could be the smartest or the best manager in the world. You may still not get that position. There is so much, you might say, fortune, but the grace of God that brings in those places. When we stop and we understand that we are all people who have received grace, that's not by our own power or authority or wisdom that gets us to these places. We suddenly become more humble, more willing to be able to understand. And we need to then demonstrate that kind of grace given out. Now, this is hard because it seems to go against the way, of, the way we've been taught and the way we've been learned. Um, I'm sure most of us learned that... Uh, a strong hand and a, and a loud voice dictates what happens. But there's something about saying, okay, well, if you walk in grace and you play the long game in this graciousness, it doesn't mean that you overlook sin. It doesn't mean that you don't say what is right or wrong, but it means you do it gracefully. Like this man who's responding to these people, he's not just hurling insults back at them, right? He's still trying to, in grace, the grace I've received, I'm trying to say, look, you should also see this. You should also understand this as well. We can still give that grace that we've received back out in speaking the truth and in speaking the truth in love. In our journey of really trying to learn how to see, we need to come before God. We need to ask him, Jesus, will you, will you really teach us and reshape our perspective, our vision? How this passage ends is fantastic because this man gets thrown out and then Jesus suddenly shows up. And I, and I love Jesus' timing because he's, again, they can't find him anywhere, right? Like how big of a place could it be? Like he's somewhere around the temple. They can't find him anywhere. Suddenly he gets thrown out. Jesus is there. Oh, hey, oh, fancy seeing you here. And Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, uh, do you believe uh, in the Son of Man? And he says, who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Like this guy always says, look, I know I'm a disciple. I, I, I've already chosen this. And you just tell me who he is and I will believe. You know, I, I want to follow them. And Jesus said, well, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one who's speaking to you. Like, I love this because this Jesus is like, I mean, it's almost like, ta-da! Um, you know, like Jesus is like, oh, now you've seen him. 
And uh, it's awesome because it's like, you know, the first time he's not seeing him, he's just heard him, right? But he doesn't recognize the voice. And he's, now you've seen him. And then he's like, um, when he's speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, I don't think we appreciate what, what is happening here. G- Jesus is staying there. And then suddenly this man finds out Jesus, and he starts worshiping him. Like, like that would be weird, right? Like in a normal circumstance, if like someone was there and suddenly someone fell out of his feet, it's like, oh my gosh, I worship you, you're the best. I mean, like, like we would think that would be strange, but, but like Jesus, like he knows without doubt, this is, this is God Almighty. On the surface, it's like he's just worshiping some man, right? Like in somewhere near the temple. It's pretty blasphemous if, if it wasn't the fact that Jesus was God. There's this powerful moment where the worship, you can imagine, just comes overflowing out of him. That life where all the grace he's received, the healing, the life, even the whole moments, the emotion of this whole situation just comes pouring out to Jesus. And Jesus is there, and he's like, yep, this is why I'm here. This is what the light looks like in this world. And then Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now, see, that's, that's a hard line. Now, like, there's a couple crazy things going on here. One, so there are some Pharisees who are kind of following Jesus around, probably saying, oh, we're interested in what you're saying. They're here. They're watching this man now <laughs> worshiping Jesus. And Jesus is saying, yeah, this is why I'm here, so that the people who are blind can see. And the people who think they can see, you know, are blind. And these disciples are like, oh, and these, these Pharisees are like, what, what? Oh, you're saying we're blind too? In other words, that pride or that arrogance or that sense of gatekeeperness or this thing of like, that, no, we're, we're the ones who understand. We're the ones who philosophize all these things. We're the ones who know the truth. Like, there are all these positions they are holding on to. You're like, no, see, you can't say that we're blind too. And Jesus is like, the very fact that you're asking whether you're blind reveals the fact that you are. That highlights how easy it is for pride to seep into our life, how, how, how easy it is to, to, to set in, and how quick it is to be like, oh, yeah, you are, you are that person. So yesterday, I think for some reason or another, my wife asked me, oh, Bert, do you think you're a good Christian? And uh, I'm like, I'm a pastor, right? So my answer should be yes, I'm a good Christian. So I think the first response was yes. And I said, no, no, I can't say yes. I, I, I think as soon as you say yes, you're a good Christian. You're not a good Christian, right? Like something's gone wrong. So I said, no, I'm not, I'm not a good Christian, but I'm, I'm, I'm saved by, by God's grace alone. And, and she's like, no, you changed your answer really fast. I said, I know, because I, you can't, that's weird. It's weird. Because the truth is the matter, when we get to the point where we think we, like, we're someone, like, we're that great, yeah, like, we're nothing, man. We're such a speck in the universe. But God is so good. He loves us so much. Like, this blind man, like, he could have just been left there. It would have been fine if Jesus just responded with a philosophical answer. But Jesus gets down there, gets his hands dirty, puts his life onto this guy. For no reason, not because this guy's special, not because anything, but just so that, you know, the works of God may be seen in him. You know, you don't understand also how special that makes each of you. You know, just being in this church, I don't know if you're a Christian yet, but if you are here, it means that God is prompting in your heart already something to say, you know, I'm coming down. I've died on this cross so that you can have this life. And I had to, to put that on you so that you can see. Like you, I, I'm here saying, yeah, God, actually, heal my eyesight. Teach me how to see. I don't want to be blind anymore. I want to still be sitting on the sidelines or just trying to debate or, or thinking that I can just tell people what to do and never actually walk alongside them. What Jesus does was this man, at this very last moment, is he enters into this relationship with him. It is this journey together with him. When this guy says, you know, do you want to believe? You know, he's like saying, I want to follow him. I want to be his disciple. Jesus welcomed The Pharisees, they just want to draw a line and say, well, okay, you're there. You're that. That's fine. That's good. Obey this, and that's fine. What Jesus is saying, nope, come, follow me. 
walk alongside me. As Christians, our relationship with one another is the same way. We're saying, well, I'm here with you for the journey. And there are going to be ups and downs. But we just keep going back to God, resting on his grace, and we try to learn. And we try to grow together. It is not a distant or cold or impersonal faith. But it is a living relationship with him. The real counter to all this blindness is one that we have to be relational. We have to really just invest in relation with one another. The second is humble. You just have to be humble. And third is you have to be gracious. Just keep learning how to be more and more gracious. Ten with, I want to go back to that very first verse where Jesus says, you know, why is this person blind? It's so that the works of God may be displayed in this person's life. Like each of us, like that should be our hunger. You know, why, are, why are we here? Why are we on this earth? So that the works of God can be displayed through us and in us. Like that's, when you start yearning for that, you know, that helps the spiritual blindness to be healed. Because you're like, yeah, Jesus, just more of that. More of making me who you want me to be. Don't, don't let me keep being so full of myself or being a gatekeeper or just being someone who comments on the sideline. Let me really live for you. Shall we pray? Jesus, we thank you so much because it's by your grace that we are saved and we're brought into this amazing relationship with you that we have this life. And God, as we come now to worship you, um, you know, let's not, we don't want to just sit here and worship from a distance, disengaged or, or like the sound people in the back just mecking around instead of actually being at your foot, the feet of you just worshiping, just the way this, this once blind man was. God, we, we don't want to serve you because it's just something that we're supposed to do as Christians, but we want this life to really pour through us, Lord. So, Ho- Holy Spirit, we're, we're, we're calling out to you now and say, will you really just uh, open, open our hearts? Give us a spiritual sight to begin seeing this world with the same kind of love that you do. And it starts with God just letting us begin to see who you are. You know, and when we stop and we see that you're God Almighty, full of grandeur and splendor and majesty and wonder, you know, the way we engage will change. So open the eyes of our hearts so that when we see you, you know, we are floored. And we we come to that place where we realize, you know, you are, you are God Almighty. We come before you and worship now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's come and worship.